Good evening, Sangha. So, um, probably many of you who've sat with me before have heard some of this before, but (laughs) I'm going to offer it again. I like to start off sometimes with a, um, a story about an old Cherokee grandfather. And um, as a Native person myself, I went to one of our Cherokee elders, Pam Jumper Thurman, and I asked her, is this a true story or is this just a made-up story? And she goes, oh yeah, no, that's a true story. (laughs) So I feel happy about telling this story about the Cherokee grandfather. So it is, an old Cherokee grandfather is teaching his grandson about life. A fight is going on inside me, he said to the boy. It's a terrible fight, and it's between two wolves. One wolf is evil. He has anger, envy, sorrow, regret, greed. She has ignorance, self-pity, guilt, resentment, lies, false pride, and ego. He continued, the other wolf is good. She has wisdom, joy, and peace, patience, serenity, determination. He has humility, kindness, empathy, generosity, faith, all sorts of good stuff. And the grandfather said to the grandson, and the fight is going on inside you too. That fight is going on inside of every person. The grandson thought about it for a minute and then asked his grandfather, which wolf will win? And the old Cherokee elder simply replied, the one you feed. And then we have one of our other spiritual grandfathers, Ajahn Chah. He says something incredibly similar. Ajahn Chah says, this path, our beloved Eightfold Path, consists of virtue, concentration, and wisdom, the framework for training the heart. Their true meaning is not to be found in these words, but dwells in the depths of our hearts. However, if the factors of the Eightfold Path are weak and timid, the defilements will possess our minds. If maga, which is the path, it's not other definitions of maga, maga means the path, Maga is the path of awakening. (laughs) If Maga, the path, is strong and courageous, it will conquer and destroy the defilements. If it's the defilements that are powerful and brave, while the path is feeble and frail, the defilements conquer our hearts. As Dhamma practice develops in the heart, these two forces battle it out at every step of the way. It's like there are two people arguing inside the mind, but it's just the path of Dhamma and the defilement struggling to win domination of the heart. As long as we are able to see clearly, the defilements will be losing ground. But if we are shaky, whenever defilements regroup and regain their strength, the path will be routed as defilements take its place. The two sides will continue to fight it out until eventually there is a victor and the whole affair is settled. It's amazing what the similarities are between those two stories. So I want to talk tonight about uh, one of the key elements of our Eightfold Path of 
our um, path to joy and happiness and contentment. And that is what we are practicing here. We're essentially practicing all of the Eightfold Path, but uh, the practice um, on the cushion, and actually I love the way um, Joseph said, you know, there's no differentiation between anything you're doing. Mindfulness is so important in any of it. I want to talk a little bit about mindfulness and why we need mindfulness. Why is it, you know, that we have distorted views about where the source of our contentment and happiness is? And um, and the Buddha talked very, just, you know, very specifically about that. You know, I was doing this Dharma talk uh, today and a little bit yesterday, and I just had this huge wave of faith and joy on how just incredible the Buddha was. I mean, he has some ideas of, you know, psychology that he's, you know, delineated 2,500 years ago that Western psychology hasn't caught up with yet. It is just so brilliant. And it just watered my faith. So so that's one thing that you can do when you're feeling kind of down and scattered or whatever. If you have any recollections of the Dhamma, you can just even, you know, have a rec- recollection on the Buddha, the Dharma, or the Sangha. And even ask faith to arise. You could say, oh, may faith arise. Or remember what faith feels like, and actually you can trigger it to arise. It's a good um, response to some confusion sometimes. But I was feeling that today. It was very sweet. So the Buddha has this one sutta specifically about... Uh, distortions of the mind is one of my very favorite suttas. It's called the Vipalasa Sutta. And he talks very specifically about three levels of distortion. Sanya uh, Vipalasa is distortions of perception. You know, and then we're seeing, you know, and we can see that in our culture that we're raised in a certain culture and we tend to evaluate things based on what other people's values or what other people want out of us, right? They want us to buy stuff, so everything looks really, you know, we think things are so attractive and our happiness is dependent on that. So we can perceive things in a way that, uh, we usually perceive things in a way that is not accurate, absolutely not accurate. So when we perceive the things around us, uh, that, uh, that uh, fuels our thought, what our thoughts are about. So when we uh, don't have a clear perception of something, we'll start, uh, our thoughts will arise about, oh yeah, this is going to make me happy. I want to do that. And so we'll start thinking about that a lot and we'll have distortions of thought. And, you know, the Buddha 2,600 years ago talked about distortions of view. And, you know, we can all see those so much around us. And Personally, I love my own mindfulness practice of this heart and mind because I see those distorted views right here all the time, you know, and I can have a pause and decide not to act on them. But when other people have those, I can, you know, actually, when I see them so clearly as just a product of causes and conditions, I don't necessarily wave my finger and blame people. It's like, yeah, that's what happens if you're not looking more clearly. And, uh, you know, we know that um, 
you know, all of these distortions of perception, all of these wrong views, all of these expressions of greed, hatred, and delusion, you know, you know, I love the fact that we don't have to be the vehicle for anybody's karma. I love reflecting on that too. We don't have to be the one that's shaking the finger and making it right. You know, sometimes it's a responsibility and we absolutely have to do that, but you know, karma's real. Nobody gets away with anything, including us. So so anyway, there's these three distortions of perception. And they uh, lead to unexamined assumptions and unvoiced assumptions about, you know, what's going on with our life. And to put very briefly, those unexamined assumptions and unvoiced assumptions are things like, oh my gosh, this is the way it's going to be forever. Has anybody had that thought today? (laughs) I remember I was so lucky that I actually got to sit a month up at the Forest Refuge in November, just a few short uh, months ago. And I'll I'll tell you, the first three or four days, maybe five, um, you know, the predominant thought was, I wonder what excuse I could get to leave here that would be appropriate for a Dharma teacher. And so I was having, you know, negative experiences that I, you know, in the moment didn't realize their impermanent nature. But they were absolutely impermanent. Um, I'll just tell you briefly, the next week it was, wow, this is so fascinating. <laughs> you know, I was, uh, I was um, indulging in um, the Venerable Analyo's new book on uh, the practice guide, Sadhupatana, the practice guide, which I would recommend to anybody, next to, of course, Joseph's brilliant book, book on the Sadhupatana. <laughs> and it was just, I saw so much interest in investigation. It was so interesting. And then the third week, it was like, wow, man, this is some deep sense of satisfaction and joy that's not dependent on anything externally. And I just soaked that in. You know, we really need to do that. When we're having positive mind states, we really need to let that rewire these neuro pathways. And we do that by really knowing they're there and resting in them and feeling them. And then by the fourth week, it was like, wow, I wonder how I could do this six months a year. <laughs> Is it, am I too old to become a nun? <laughs> you know? And, you know, you really see how much all of us are getting played by greed, hatred, and delusion to think that our happiness is an outside stuff. And I so got why the Buddha said, I'm not playing that. You know, he set up this monastic community and all they, you know, their requirements were food, clothing, shelter, and medicine. That's good to know. Medicine was a requisite. (laughs) We all deserve medicine. And, um, you know, they were able to have incredible amounts of joy and happiness just having those needs met. So all of the other things that we think we need that are part of our, you know, our system, I think we are all getting played. But what do we need? What do we need to get beyond and see the truth? And, you know, what happens when we don't see the truth, when we are resting in these 
uh, delusions of perception, thought, and view. We often get preoccupied with external fixes. Oh my gosh, the opioid epidemic. You know, I'm doing a little bit of work in that area and it's just... uh, uh, drugs, alcohol, sex, spending, you know, retail therapy. Name your poison. Blame, you know, projecting our suffering and saying, it's this person's fault or it's this system's fault. Um, or, you know, uh, our own self-pity, like, oh my gosh. Um, many of us have historical trauma, intergenerational trauma. And we can, you know, sometimes just wallow in that sense of done wrongness and self-pity without realizing, hey, that might have been what happened, but we're the only ones that are responsible for pulling ourselves out of it. We're the only ones that can pull ourselves out of it. Or we have outright denial. You know, that's a good one. Uh, Two very common uh, practices of uh, uh, untrained mind, you know, our neuro um, pathways uh, have us either indulge in experience that can bring us brief happiness. You know, we have obsession and indulgence and we privilege knowing about things more than other. Or uh, the other thing that we do is that we deny experience. You know, oh, I'm not looking at that. We repress things. We're intolerant to hearing about things. So it really, uh, we try to control. And we do this all without any conscious awareness. You know, it's based on that second foundation, many times vade in a feeling tone, right? We are so conditioned in our neuro pathways to run towards the pleasant and run away from the unpleasant. I mean, we do it without even realize we're doing it most of the time. But that's where our um, remedy comes in. The remedy, and that's what we're practicing. This week we're all practicing to strengthen our samasati and all of our path factors, but specifically samasati, wise mindfulness. And this is what the sutta says. Actually, this is written down. It says, this is the way, O bhikkhunis, for the purification of beings, for the overcoming of sorrow and lamentation, for the destruction of suffering and grief, for reaching the right path, for the attainment of Nibbana, namely the four foundations of mindfulness. This practice, mindfulness. We should all just rest a little bit in how, you know, happy we are that we are here, regardless of whether we're liking it or not. <laughs> this is such excellent karma and excellent. I'm, I'm feeling so much... Is it pride? No, just happiness in your being here. Whether you're enjoying it or not, it doesn't matter. You know, it's an incredibly wholesome thing to do. You've got like a whole big bag of compost and a big old watering jug for all of your positive qualities this week. I'm feeling very happy for you right now. Can you feel it? Yeah, can you feel it? Wow. (laughs) 
So, samasati sati. So, what is mindfulness? So, mindfulness is a capacity of awareness. And I know, you know, many of you here have um, been practicing for so long. So, I ask all of you actually just to rest back. Don't try to remember anything. Just let what I'm saying sink into your intuitive knowledge system, not your conceptual knowledge system. Let your intuitive knowledge system be open and just listen to what I'm saying about mindfulness. So mindfulness is a capacity of awareness. Many people, uh, Joseph has this excellent uh, talk called Clarifying Terms that I would recommend. And at the end of the retreat, I will put up everything I recommended. I promise I will put it up on the board. So you don't need to remember. Um, and uh, he talks about, in that talk, it's so brilliant, he talks about the dif- difference between consciousness, perception, mindfulness, and wisdom. And consciousness is just the knowing quality, the knowing quality. And that's associated with the sense doors, with, you know, we have eye consciousness, we can see right now. We could be noting actually seeing, seeing, if we bring our awareness to that, seeing, seeing. You're probably um, right now for sure having some hearing consciousness. You could be noting, oh, hearing is like this. We have the capacity to hear, many of us, some of us uniquely abled people, maybe not so much, but that's not necessarily a detriment, sometimes that can be an asset. Uh, But we have the consciousness of hearing, uh, the consciousness of tasting, of sensations, feeling in the body, and the consciousness of mind awareness. Was that all of them? Oh, smell. What did you say? Yeah, yes, yes. You guys were counting, no. (laughs) Smelling, right? So that's what consciousness is, is having those sense doors in in order to, uh, and, you know, something outside, right? It's that contact. It's, we have these sense doors and we have contact through those, um, those uh, qualities in order to have consciousness of things. And then after consciousness comes perception. And that is... Uh, you know, when we label things and name things. And a lot of the time that can be useful, but a lot of the times we totally mess it up. You know, we're not really seeing clearly what's happening. And I think one thing about perception too is the whole idea of emptiness. You know, sometimes when we perceive things, we think that they are so solid and they're real and they last forever. And, um, you know, we don't see their impermanent nature. So we're not seeing clearly if we just have the idea that um, the way that I like to say it actually to some of my students sometimes is if you believe in a God, like an ultimate reality, it's not like God has a three by five card in heaven that says, this is what a retreat looks like, you know? So all of these concepts we have, these perceptions we have, are more verbs than nouns. They're a function of our life that we put together and could be changed, absolutely could be changed. And they're absolutely directed a lot by, you know, what the predominant forces in our hearts are, as Ajahn Chah said and the Cherokee grandfather. 
So perception. And then mindfulness is another thing. Mindfulness is a capacity of awareness. So we are building that capacity as we sit and as we practice with kindness and gentleness. Um, And it's a capacity of awareness. It strengthens our quality of clear seeing. It's the development of an receptive, uh, receptive awareness. And it's usually at the initial stages of the perception process. Um, the um, early Buddhist scholars say that mindfulness becomes is really predominant at the beginning of the perception process. And we strengthen mindfulness, as um, Joseph said so well this morning, uh, partly through strength, through uh, the strength of concentration, samadhi, but absolutely through um, continuity. You know, we uh, are, uh, are the strength of our mindfulness or the clarity of our mindfulness weakens when we're just, you know, walking around and thinking, oh, I'm not practicing right now. I'm standing in line for uh, the meal or some other element of a retreat that you might not think is retreat practice. So continuity is really important. And, um, you know, not believing the first perception of things, maybe. I like to think, I like to say, putting a frame around our experience. And, um, you know, seeing if we can't water the seeds of our investigation and effort to look more closely about what things are. For me, I, uh, one of the ways I tell the difference between mindfulness and perception is if, uh, you know, the things that are arising, the things that are predominant in awareness, how sticky they are. And by that, I mean just how much, how personal they feel. Does that make sense? Sometimes you'll have a thought and like, it'll be so sticky, like you're believing the thought, you know, we think that we're making up these thoughts, but actually the opposite is true. These thoughts are making up us. <laughs> it's true. So, you know, that's why we really need to just uh, get, you know, strengthen the mindfulness or bring more mindfulness to the situation and realize that, yeah, this is, you know, uh, the truth of any perception or experience is that um, uh, the three characteristics, we know that we're seeing really, really clearly when we can see these three things. One, that it's imperfect. Even this retreat's going to be imperfect. Our mindfulness is going to often be imperfect. Uh, the second is we're seeing the um, impermanence of something. Like, you know, one minute we'll realize, oh, I'm sitting in meditation and, oh, wow, I'm feeling a lot of contentment. I'm feeling satisfaction. I just love everybody. (laughs) And then the next minute someone will come into the hall and make some noise (laughs) or the person next to you will be jiggling too much (laughs) and you'll have this incredibly strong thought, oh, my gosh, will these people ever get a clue? And it'll feel very personal, like, you know, I'm having this thought and this is happening to me. And, um, and other times you will have that thought and you'll say, wow, look at that. Some, you know, angers arising and resentments arising, but it won't necessarily feel like it's so sticky to you. I'm sure you might uh, be able to feel that as well. So, um, 
that is one way to check out whether you're perceiving things or whether, you know, just how sharp your mindfulness is, how sticky something is in the mind. The other thing that we need to look at too that sharpens our mindfulness is not only what we're perceiving, you know, and that, you know, I think that everything that can arise within awareness or within consciousness fits somewhere within the four foundations of mindfulness, pretty much. <laughs> and, you know, we can, you know, we can say, wow, yeah, so that's thoughts arising, that's emotions arising, that's m emotions in the felt sense of the body, that's um, unpleasant Vedana, oh yeah, unpleasant Vedana, ooh, that's pleasant Vedana. You know, anything that arises can be, um, um, can be included within the four foundations. And another thing that is also included in the four foundations is what is the attitude of mind that's holding that? And that is, that will often be when mindfulness isn't that strong, something will arise and then we'll have an attitude towards it. And this happens to me all the time. Something, you know, connected to greed, hatred, and delusion will arise and I'll flinch. But then the flinch becomes the next thing I see. You know, we don't necessarily need to um, identify with that either. We can just say, yeah, that's the patterns of this mind. Not perfect, not permanent, not personal. You can pretty much guess that everyone sitting around you is going through a similar process. So stickiness and attitude of mind can be also part of the perception process. And then... Um, Another aspect of uh, sati or sati, uh, samasati as an awakening factor, as something that will help us really see clearly and awaken to the truth uh, and our ability to uh, maintain our own satisfaction and well-being, you know, our own well-being that isn't dependent on external things is something um, associated with samasati and that's sampajanya or clear comprehension. And we can uh, know when we have clear comprehension too. Uh, one aspect of clear comprehension is we understand what our motivation for doing something is. Like when I sat down, I was having the motivation actually of just, I was having a lot of joy and seeing the motivation of just being able to sit with Sangha and us all just watering the seeds of our positive qualities and it just brought me so much joy. And I was motivated by a very wholesome intention of sharing the Dhamma, of you know having us all together water the seeds of our positive qualities. So knowing our intention of things, you know, it goes back to the two wolves and the defilements and maga fighting it out. You know, it's so helpful and useful to see what our motivation for things is. And then, you know, and, and when we recognize that it's maybe not very wholesome motivation, you know, be so happy that your clear comprehension realized that. You know, that's a could be a source of joy as well. I see you, Mara. Yes, you see the delusion. So that's the first aspect of Sampajanic clear comprehension is recognizing what our motivation is, whether it's our actions of thought, speech, and mind, uh, of thought, speech, or actions, what we're thinking, what we're saying, or what we're doing. If it's motivated by the paramis or 
the Brahma Viharas are beautiful qualities of mind or whether, you know, I saw a handout, maybe I'll put it on the board, I don't know, 108 defilements. <laughs> and it's, you know, 108 manifestations essentially of greed, hatred, and delusion. Sometimes it's nice to be able to kind of name it, right? So there's a lot of those. So knowing what the motivation is. The second uh, aspect of clear comprehension, uh, sabajanya, is actually suitability. To know uh, what you're doing in the moment, whether it really is furthering your progress on the path and strengthening your positive mental factors and strengthening your path factors. And that is like, I remember um, sitting a month once, actually I think it was with Joseph and Kamala up at the Forest Refuge. And Kamala, she's such a wonderful teacher, and she's like no-nonsense, and that's what you want probably, right? You want the no-nonsense teachers. She said, Bonnie, (laughs) you know, I know you probably could take a walk around the loop when, you know, certain things are happening, that's very skillful means, But, you know, walking around the loop and just daydreaming is not walking meditation. So you should know what is really um, furthering your intentions and your path here and what isn't. But I also remember once, you know, uh, telling Joseph that I felt like I had over effort. You know, we really need a balance of effort. And sometimes our effort gets too strong. And, you know, it's not necessarily something that we're doing. The past takes over and these factors take over. And he said, oh, Bonnie, you better walk around the loop. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, it's about uh, suitability, knowing what's appropriate for what's happening in the moment suitability, uh, the appropriate time and place for what we're doing. And, you know, suitability of cell phones, absolutely not so much. (laughs) And then appropriate domain, uh, uh, appropriate domain and sense restraint. I love this one, sense restraint. And this one is so important um, because with what we expose our to in our senses, that's watering seeds of stuff. And many of you probably know the two, some of the two things that happen on longer retreats, I'm sure it will happen here, is the VR and the VV. (laughs) The VR is the Vipassana romance, and the VV is the Vipassana vendetta. (laughs) And the Vipassana romance, I mean, I remember having these, it's crazy. Just these delusional thoughts that your absolute perfect mate is sitting two aisles behind you on the left. (laughs) And it's like these stories that we tell ourselves. It's just crazy. And, you know, um, actually, oftentimes, I'll find myself getting into those type of stories when I have neutral Vedana, neutral feeling tone. Because oftentimes, with neutral feeling tone, we'll start wanting to entertain ourselves. We won't recognize, oh, neutral feeling tone is like this. Neutral feeling tone is like this. So just to explore that and see, you know, what other qualities that might give rise to. Actually, it could give rise to tranquility to not have a lot of strong sensation there in the moment. But anyway, so um, Vipassana romance, you know. So what you want to do is if you're finding yourself that you have a crush on somebody, and I'm going to tell you, I'm sure all of us have played this out 
many times with the yogis, like, no, no, this is going to happen. And then at the end, it's like, wow, I was so deluded. Um, you know, you probably want to remove yourself from a lot of exposure to that person. And the same is true with the Vipassana Vendetta. You know, there might be one or two persons that like something someone does that reminds you of something that happened when you were a kid or something and you're, um, you know, projecting all of this anger and all of this, um, you know, negative um, perceptions of a person and you really don't know who they are at all. So uh, that's also a time where you probably want to... um, uh, uh, to practice sense restraint and don't let yourself be around that a lot very much. And then clear comprehension, wisdom, actually the fourth aspect of it is really wisdom, non-delusion. That's where the wisdom comes in. And that's where you can see when you're looking, you know, at everything pretty much, wow, that's imperfect and that's the way things are. You know, we don't expect... Um, our partners to be perfect, our retreat experience to be perfect. We don't expect our teachers to be perfect or the lunch to be perfect because we know that's one of the characteristics of conditioned existence, that it is dukkha. You know, in dukkha, there's a huge spectrum of dukkha, right? And um, we don't expect it to be permanent. We realize that, you know, you might not resonate with something I say tonight, but that's impermanent. (laughs) You might, you know, like me during the groups that we're sitting in. You know, the same with all of us. And the same with everything in your life, right? It's impermanent. And then the one I love the most is that it's not personal. And I know um, Justice said he was going to give a talk on Anatta. And uh, that is that it's also not personal that all of these qualities that we have are part of our, you know, some of it is part of our evolutionary psychology that we're having these urges, you know, particularly around attraction and aversion. Um, Attraction, you know, those hormones, oh my gosh. I'm telling you, it is so wonderful to be a crone. And not to be subject to those <laughs> hormonic forces. It is such a wonderful thing. Anyway, um, so those are the four um, domains of clear comprehension is seeing your motivation, seeing suitability, you know, is this the best place for me to be right now? And then uh, sense restraint and non-delusion, seeing the emptiness or realizing that, you know, these forces that we have are evolutionary psychology or they're um, just habits of mind that they're not personal to me. This is, being human is like this. You know, having greed, hatred, and delusion, if you're born on the planet, pretty much you're living in a system that is really um, fueling those uh, f- fueling and feeding that wolf, you know, we, it's feeding that wolf and um, realizing that it's not personal, that, you know, just as I'm suffering like this, so is the person next to me and behind me and in front of me and beside me. Maybe not right now, but definitely before this retreat is over. I'm sure there's many, many very um, similar situations. So what sati does, or mindfulness, 
what it does is uh, when we can see very clearly, we uh, realize what our perception of some is something in the moment, but we, you know, we see that concept and realize, well, you know, that's an empty concept, that's a function, and maybe that function is playing out right now or not. But what it does on a uh, intuitive level is that it deconditions our perceptual distortions. Isn't that, isn't that a wonderful thought? It, it's really deconditioning us not seeing clearly what is happening in the moment. It's allowing us to see more clearly you know, the three characteristics and what's happening in the moment. And uh, sati mindfulness is a progressive restructuring towards seeing things clearly, sati sampajana. So that's what we're practicing. And so what, are, what, are, what is a right attitude or what are some of the attitudes of mind that are very helpful as we're practicing? One is to um, realize that uh, uh, one of the central characteristics of sati mindfulness is it's, it's equanimous. It you know doesn't care whether um, what is arising is you know good or bad. It's it's not very personal, so it can see clearly. You know, it just is saying bring it. It doesn't matter. You can bring it all. So uh, and that's in a way you know in the mindfulness. Uh, based interventions, they talk about that as no judgment, no judgment. It's no judgment, but it's also knowing, it's no judgment in that you're not judging yourself, saying, wow, yeah, look at this greed, hatred, and delusion. Hey, welcome to humanity. Oh, I love you, Bonnie, you're okay. <laughs> you know, realizing that it's not personal, but also non-judgment doesn't mean not seeing your intention, because that's really important to see your intention. And once you realize that you're intention is from ignorance or greed or aversion and you flinch see the flinch next you know see your negative reaction to that which is a judgment and just the next thing to be known the next thing to be known I actually often on retreats will give a talk on patience Um, I have this really sweet little 10 paramis quiz that you can check out what are your strongest paramis and what are your weakest ones (laughs) And patience was kind of one of my weakest ones. And what do you do when you realize what you need to work on? You do a Dharma talk about it, right? (laughs) Or you organize a group to study it, a group study around that thing. That's a good thing to do about it. So patience is uh, also an excellent quality to water the seeds of and uh, make stronger while we're, we're practicing. And you know, oftentimes, if you can remember what patience look, uh, feels like, you can, and that's why when we're having positive mental qualities, we really want to soak that up. We want to feel that positive mental quality or emotional quality, whatever it is, throughout our whole body and throughout our whole heart. We want to feel it in order to remember what it's like, because oftentimes, if you remember it, you can call it up. You can say, may patience arise right now. May my patience arise right now and then remember it and sometimes it comes and helps us out. So patience is a good attitude. And a beginner's mind. I think this is, 
you know, not knowing, uh, not always knowing, thinking that we know what is happening. Or, you know, I often use mental noting in order to maintain being present with what's happening in this heart and mind and body. I'll use mental noting. But I realize that noting isn't necessarily the core element of something. It's just something that will keep me connected. And I uh, continue... Or, you know, the force of investigation, it's not that we do investigation. Investigation is a very wholesome, positive quality that arises as part of our practice. It's within, you know, the four foundations of mindfulness. You know, we strengthen that when we get to the fourth foundation in our um, seven enlightenment factors. So, um, you know, we can have a beginner's mind and let go of thinking that we know what something is. Is always a good thing that I like. You know, we let go of, uh, you know, we have two knowledge systems. We have a conceptual knowledge system that we absolutely need to be in the world. We count things, we name things, we build, you know, a society around concepts that are essentially empty but fulfill, you know, their verbs and are fulfilling some function either of greed, hatred, and delusion or some more wholesome qualities. But, um, and that's our conceptual knowledge system, but we have this intuitive knowledge system where insight comes from. And, um, and it's good to maintain and water the seeds of a beginner's mind. Because if you know what something is, you're probably not going to see more clearly what else it could be, right? So, having a beginner's mind about things. Or just watering the seeds of investigation. You know, what else? You know, this is interesting. What else? Just being open. But not greedy open. Just open. And then trust, to trust the path. And I love this one. It's so important that, you know, um, the path is not something that we do. The path is what arises. It's something that arises in us when we're practicing with, uh, you know, with right effort and with sincerity. We don't have to say, oh, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to do the progress of insight on this retreat. In fact, if you do that, pretty much that's not going to happen. If you want spiritual progress, there's someone there wanting it. And, you know, those types of huge insights don't happen to anybody, if you know what I mean. (laughs) It's only when we've let go of those attachment and that striving and we're just open to, you know, being with open awareness and life that the path kicks in and then that has its own force, it has its own way. And we just surrender to that and trust the process. So trusting the path is really excellent. So if just a few more thoughts. I used to not necessarily like... Um, how neuroscience was holding the Dhamma. But actually, you know, I went through one of my training programs with Rick Hansen, and yeah, Rick Hansen, he's a Buddhist for sure. (laughs) And some of the things that he talks about, I think are really uh, important for us to just take in. For example, the whole negativity bias, right? 
the negativity bias. And, you know, that's an evolutionary psychology thing that, uh, you know, we have this um, inherent um, inclination to notice the bad bad things a lot more than we notice the good things. And we notice the bad things because, you know, there's a saber-toothed tiger in the in the bushes and we got to be careful. You know, we are, you know, in probably, probably earlier parts, actually probably currently now, there are forces out there that could really harm us. And, you know, we're always looking for the negative. And so negative experiences are like Velcro and positive experiences are like Teflon. And one of the really important things I've been saying a few times, but I want to say it again, is that we have to really look out for all of the positive things that are happening. So when you're sitting there seething or mad at the person next to you, you could think, oh, what's going right in this room right now? What is going right? And just look around and appreciate everyone's incredibly sincere effort and of being here and their positive intentions of awakening, not only for themselves, but for others as well. And it's really important, too, to see the positive qualities in yourself as well. Because you will feel tranquility, and I'm sure you will feel joy, and you will feel compassion and metta, loving kindness. And when you're feeling that, don't just let it go. Say, oh, I'm compassionate right now, and really try to soak that in as much as you can. Because that soaking in is the process of rewiring our neuropathways. That's what, you know, it does. It actually inclines the mind to have those experiences a lot more. So we really want to pay attention to those and incline the mind to that. And, you know, um, it all comes down to whether the our actions of the moment are... Um, motivated by wholesome, positive qualities or whether they're um, motivated by greed, hatred, and delusion. And when we see it so much in ourselves, I mean, I see it in myself all the time and it kind of doesn't faze me anymore. You know, I do a lot of social justice work and I see racism, sexism, homophobia, classism, ableism, ageism. I see it all the time because I was raised in a culture that, you know, tried to sell people things based on that. <laughs> and, um, and, you know, I see it, I pause, and then I don't act on it. But that's sometimes my first perception of things. And when I see that in other people, it makes me have a lot more compassion for them. You know, we don't necessarily need to say, yeah, you know, you're like this, because pretty much we're kind of all like that. But we don't have to act on it. And we can see that and then go on to watering the seeds of our very positive quality. So you want to see things like gratitude. We want to see gratitude and um, loving kindness and all those positive things. So I will close with two little quotes that I like. This is by Wei Wu Wei. He says, the role of happiness in our lives. Why are you unhappy? Because 99.9% of everything you think and of everything you do is for yourself. And there isn't one. <laughs> 
<laughs> That's a very indigenous, actually, sentiment that you know, we're all in this together. And then my second one is effort, effort versus success. Effort is more important than so-called success because effort is a real thing. What we call success is just the manifestation of our mind's ability to categorize things. This is success, this is failure. Who says? You says, that's all. Reality is what it is beyond all concepts of success and failure. So let's, let's sit for a minute. May the positive energies of our practice bring us all to awakening so that may we may help end suffering everywhere. <laughs>